So I wouldn't be surprised if we had AGI-like systems within the next decade. It was pretty surprising to almost everyone, including the people who first worked on the scaling hypotheses, that how far it's gone. In a way, I look at the large models today and I think they're almost unreasonably effective for what they are. It's an empirical question whether that will hit an asymptote or a brick wall. I think no one knows. When you think about uh, superhuman intelligence, is it like still controlled by a private company? As Gemini are becoming more multimodal and we start ingesting audio-visual data, Data as well as text data, I do think our systems are going to start to understand the physics of the real world better. The world's about to become very exciting, I think, in the next few years as we start getting used to the idea of what true multimodality means. Okay, today it is a true honor to speak with Demis Asavis, who is the CEO of DeepMind. Demis, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. First question, given your neuroscience background, how do you think about intelligence? Specifically, do you think it's like one higher level general reasoning circuit, or do you think it's thousands of independent subskills and heuristics? Well, it's interesting because intelligence is so uh, uh, broad and um, you know what we use it for is is so sort of generally applicable. I think that suggests that you know there must be some sort of high level uh, uh, common things in, you know, common kind of algorithmic themes, I think around how the brain processes the world around us. So, um, of course that then there are specialized parts of the brain that, that do specific things. Um, but I think there are probably some underlying principles that underpin all of that. Yeah. How do you make sense of the fact that in these LLMs though, when you give them a lot of data in any specific domain, they tend to get uh, asymmetrically better in that domain. Uh, it, wouldn't we expect a sort of like general improvement across all the all the different areas? Well, it? I think you, first of all, I think you do actually sometimes get surprising improvement in other domains when you improve in a specific domain. So for example, uh, when these uh, large models sort of improve at coding, that can actually improve their general reasoning. So there, there is some evidence of some transfer, although I think we would, we would like a lot more evidence of that. Um, but also, you know, that's how uh, the human brain learns too, is if we experience and practice a, lo a lot of things like chess or, you know, writing, creative writing or whatever that is, we also tend to specialize and get better at that specific thing, even though we're using uh, sort of general learning techniques and general learning systems in order to, uh, you know, to get good at that domain. Yeah. Well, what's been the most surprising example of this kind of tr transfer for you? Like you see language and code or images and text? What, what's? Yeah, I think probably, um, I mean, I'm hoping we're going to see a lot more of this trying to transfer, but, uh, but I think uh, things like getting better at coding uh, and math then generally improving your reasoning, um, that is how it works with us as, as human learners. But uh, I think it's interesting seeing that in, in these, in these uh, artificial systems. And can you see the sort of mechanistic way in which, uh, let's say in the language and code example, there's like, I, I found the place in a neural network that's getting better with both the language and the code, or is, is, it, is it that too too far down the weeds? Yeah, well, I don't think our analysis, analysis techniques are quite sophisticated enough to be able to hone in on that. Um, I think that's actually one of the areas that um, a lot more research needs to be done on kind of mechanistic analysis of the representations that these systems build up. And, um, you know, I sometimes like to call it virtual brain analytics in a way. It's a <laughs> bit like doing uh, fMRI or a single cell recording from, uh, from a real brain. Uh, what's the analogous sort of analysis techniques for these artificial minds? And um, there's a lot of great work going on on this sort of stuff. People like Chris Ola, uh, I really like his work. And a lot of computational neuroscience techniques, I think, could be brought to bear 
uh, on uh, analyzing these current systems we're building. In fact, I try to encourage a lot of my computational neuroscience friends to 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 start thinking in that direction and applying their know-how um, uh, to the to the to the large models. Yeah. What do what do other AI researchers not understand about human intelligence that you you uh, you have some sort of like insight on given your neuroscience background? I, I think. Um, Neuroscience has added a lot. Uh, if you look at the last sort of 10, 20 years that that we've been at it at least, and, and you know, I've been thinking about this for 30 plus years, um, I think in the earlier days of this sort of new wave of AI, I think neuroscience was providing a lot of interesting directional clues. So things like reinforcement learning, combining that with deep learning, you know, some of our pioneering work we did there, things like experience replay, um, even the notion of attention, which has become super yeah. important. Um, a lot of those uh, original sort of inspirations come from some understanding about how the brain works. Not the exact specifics, of course, you know, one's an engineered system, the other one's a natural system. So it's not so much about a one-to-one mapping of a specific algorithm. It's more kind of inspirational direction, maybe some ideas for architecture or algorithmic ideas or representational ideas. Um, and because you know, the, you know, the brain's an existence proof that general intelligence is possible at all. I think, um, you know, the, the history of human endeavors has been that once you know something's possible, it's easier to push hard in that direction because you know it's a question of effort then uh, and sort of a question of when, not if. Um, and that allows you to, you know, I think make progress a lot more quickly. So I think neuroscience has, has had a lot of, um, uh, has inspired a lot of the thinking, uh, at least in a soft way, uh, behind where we are today. Um, but as for, you know, going forwards, um, I think that there's still a lot of interesting um, things to be resolved around planning and um, how does the brain construct the right world models. Um, you know, I studied, for example, uh, how the brain does imagination, or you can think of it as uh, mental simulation. So how do we create, you know, very rich visual spatial simulations of the world in order for us to plan better? Yeah, actually, I'm curious how you think that will sort of interface with LLMs. So obviously, DeepMind is at the frontier and has been for many years, you know, with systems like AlphaZero and so yeah. forth, of having these agents who can like think through different steps to get to an end outcome. Yeah. Um, are, it, will this just be, is a path for LLMs to have this sort of uh, tree search kind of thing on top of them? How, how do you think about this? I think that's a super promising direction, in my opinion. So, you know, we've got to carry on improving uh, the large models and we've got to carry on um basically making them more and more accurate predictors of the world. So in effect, making them more and more reliable world models, that's clearly a necessary, but I would say probably not sufficient component of an AGI system. Um, and then on top of that, I would, you know, we're working on things like alpha zero like planning mechanisms on top that make use of that model in order to make concrete plans to achieve certain goals in the world um, and and perhaps sort of chain you know th uh, chain thought together or lines of reasoning together and maybe use search to kind of explore massive spaces of possibility i think that's kind of missing from our current large models um, how do you get past the sort of uh, uh, immense amount of compute that these approaches tend to require? So even the AlphaGo uh, system was, you know, a pretty expensive system because um, you had to do this sort of uh, running an LLM on, LLM on each node of the tree. Uh, how, how do you anticipate that'll get more made more efficient? Well, I mean, one thing is Moore's law tends to tends to tends to tends to help uh, if if you know over, over every every year, of course, um, um, more computation comes in. But um, we focus a lot on efficient, you know, sample efficient methods and 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 reusing uh, existing data, things like experience replay, um, and also just looking at 
uh, more efficient ways. I mean, the better your world model is, the more efficient your search can be. So one example I always give with AlphaZero, our system to play Go and chess and you know any game, is that um, it's stronger than world champion level, human world champion level, uh, all these games. Um, and it uses a lot less search than a brute force method. Um, like Deep Blue, say, to play chess. Deep Blue, uh, uh, one of these traditional stockfish or Deep Blue um, uh, systems would maybe look at millions of uh, possible moves for every decision it's going to make. Alpha Zero uh, and Alpha Go made, you know, looked at around ten, tens of thousands of um, possible positions in order to make a decision about what to move next. But a human grandmaster, a human world champion, uh, probably only looks at a few hundreds of moves, even the top ones, in order to make their very uh, good decision about what to play next. So that suggests that obviously the brute force systems don't have any real model other than the heuristics about the game. Uh, Alpha Zero has quite a decent uh, uh, model, but the but the human you know human top human players have a much richer, much more accurate model than of Go or chess. So that allows them to make you know world class decisions on a very small amount of search. So I think there's still there's a sort of trade off there. Like you know if you improve the models, then I think your search can be more efficient, and therefore you can get further with your search. Yeah. I have two questions based on that. Uh, the first being, with Alpha's Go, you had um, a very concrete win condition of, you know, at the end of the day, do I win this game of Go or not? And you can reinforce on that. Uh, when you're just thinking of like an LLM putting out thought, what will uh, do you think there will be this kind of ability to discriminate uh, in the end, whether that was like a good a good thing to reward or not? Well, of course, that's why we, you know, we pioneered and, and DeepMind sort of famous for using games as a proving ground, um, partly because obviously it's efficient to research in that domain. But the other reason is obviously it's, very, it's you know, extremely easy to specify a reward function, winning the game or improving the score or something like that sort of built into most games. So that is the, the that is the, the one of the challenges of real world systems is how does one define uh, the right objective function, the right reward function, um, and the right goals um, and specify them in a in in you know in a general way, but that's specific enough and 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 actually points the system in the right direction. And um, for real world problems, that can be a lot harder. But actually, if you think about it, uh, in even scientific problems, uh, there are usually ways that you can specify the goal that you're after. Mm. And then when you think about human intelligence, you were just saying, well, you know, the humans thinking about these thoughts are just super sample efficient. Um, how, Einstein coming up with relativity, right? There's just like thousands of possible permutations of the equations. Do you think it's also this sort of sense of like different heuristics of like, I'm going to try out this approach instead of this? Or is it a totally different way of approaching coming up with that solution uh, than, you know, what AlphaGo does to plan the next move? Yeah. Well, look, I think it's different because there's the, our brains are not built for tr doing Monte Carlo tree search, yeah, yeah. right? Um, it's, it's, it's just not the way. Uh, uh, our organic brains would work. Um, so I think that in order to compensate for that, you know, people like Einstein have come up, you know, their brains have using their intuition and, you know, we can maybe come to what intuition is, but they use their sort of knowledge and their experience to build extremely, you know, in Einstein's case, extremely accurate models of physics, including these sort of mental simulations. I think if you read about Einstein and how he came up with things, he used to visualize and sort of uh, uh, really kind of um, uh, uh, feel what these physical systems should be like, not just the mathematics of it, but have a really intuitive feel for what they would be like in reality. And that allowed him to think these 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 sort of very outlandish thoughts at the time. Um, so I think that it's, it's, it's the sophistication of the world models that we're building, which then, you know, if you imagine your world model can get you to a certain node in a, in a tree that you're searching and then you just do a little bit of search 
around that node, that leaf node, and that gets you to these original places. But obviously, if your model is and your judgment on that model is is very, very good, then you can pick which leaf nodes you should sort of expand with search much more accurately. So therefore, overall, you do a lot less search. I mean, there's no way that, you know, any human could could do a kind of brute force search over any any kind of significant space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a, a big sort of open question right now is whether uh, RL will allow these models to do the self-play synthetic data to get over the data, data bottleneck. It sounds like you're optimistic about this. How, yeah, how I'm very this? optimistic about that. I mean, I think, uh, well, first of all, there's still a lot more data, I think, that can be used, especially if one views like multimodal and video and these kind of things. And uh, obviously, you know, society's adding more data all the time. Um, but I think uh, uh, to the internet and things like that, but I think that uh, there's a lot of scope for creating synthetic data. Um, we're, we're looking at that in different ways, um, partly through simulation, using uh, game, very realistic games environments, for example, to generate uh, realistic data, um, but also um, self-play. So that's where um, systems um, uh, interact with each other or, or, or converse with each other. Um, and in the sense of, you know, worked very well for us with AlphaGo and AlphaZero where we got the systems to play against each other and actually learn from each other's mistakes and, and build up a knowledge base that way. And I think there are some good analogies for that. It's a little bit more complicated, but to 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 build a general kind of world data. Mm. How do you get to the point where these models, the um, the sort of synthetic data they're outputting, the self-play they're doing, uh, is, is not just more of what they've already got in their data set, but is something they haven't seen before? To, you know what I mean? To actually improve the abilities. Yeah, so there I think there's a whole... Um, uh, science needed, and, and I think we're still in the nascent stage of this, of data curation and data analysis. So actually analyzing uh, the holes that you have in your data distribution, uh, and this is important for things like fairness and bias and other stuff to remove that from the system, is to is to try and really make sure that your data set is representative of the distribution you're trying to learn. And, uh, and you know, there are many tricks there one can use, like overweighting or replaying certain parts of the data. Or you could imagine if you identify some, some gap in your data set, that's where you put your synthetic generation capabilities to work on. Yeah. So, you know, nowadays people are paying attention to uh, the, the, the RL stuff that uh, DeepMind did many years before. What are the sort of uh, either early research directions or something that was done way back in the past, but people just haven't been paying attention to that you think will be a big deal, right? Like there was a time where people weren't paying attention to scaling. Yeah. Well, what's the thing now where it's like totally underrated? Well, actually, I think that, you know, that there's the, the history of the sort of last couple of decades has been things coming in and out of fashion, yeah, right? Yeah. And and I, th I do feel like um, a while ago when, you know, maybe five plus years ago, when we were, were pioneering with AlphaGo and before that DQN where it was the first system with, you know, that worked on Atari, but our, our first big system really more than 10 years ago now that scaled up queue learning and reinforcement learning techniques to deal, you know, combine that with deep learning uh, to create deep reinforcement learning and then uh, use that to scale up to complete some, you know, master some pretty complex tasks like playing Atari games just from the pixels. And uh, I do actually think a lot of those ideas um, need to come back in again. And as we talked about earlier, combine it with the new advances in large models and large multimodal models, which is obviously very exciting as well. So I do think there's a lot of potential for combining uh, uh, some of those older ideas together with the newer ones. Uh, is there any potential for something to come, uh, the AGI to eventually come from just a pure RL approach? Like the, the way we're talking about it, it sounds like 
there'll be uh, the LLM will form the right prior, and then this sort of tree search will go on top of that. Yeah. Or is it a possibility of just like completely I, out of the I, dark? I think I certainly, you know, th theoretically, I think there's no reason why you couldn't go full alpha zero like yeah, yeah, on yeah. it. And there are some people uh, here at, DeepMind, at, at Google DeepMind and, and, and in the RL community who work on that, right? Um, fully uh, assuming no priors, uh, no data, and, and just build every, all knowledge from scratch. Um, and I think that's valuable because, of course, you could, you know, you, those those ideas and those algorithms should also work when you have some knowledge yeah. too. Um, but having said that, I think by far probably my betting would be the quickest way to get to AGI and the most likely plausible way is to um, use all the knowledge that's existing in the world right now on things like the web and that we've collected and we have these scalable uh, algorithms like D like um, transformers that are capable of ingesting all of that information. And I don't see why you wouldn't start with a, a model as a kind of prior or, or to build on and to make predictions that helps bootstrap your learning. I just think it, it it doesn't make sense not to make use of that. So my my, my betting would be is that um, you know uh, uh, the the final AGI system will have these large multimodals um, models as part of the, the the overall solution, but probably uh, won't be enough on their own. You will need this additional planning search on top. Okay, this sounds like the answer to the question I'm about to ask, which is, um, what what is as somebody who's been in this field for a long time and seen different trends come and go. What do you think that the strong version of the scaling hypothesis gets right and what does it get wrong? There's just the idea that you just throw enough compute at a wide enough distribution of data and you get intelligence. Yeah, look, I, my, my view is this is kind of an empirical question right now. Yeah. So I think it was pretty surprising to almost everyone, including the people you know who, who first worked on the scaling hypothesis, that how far it's gone. In a way, I, I mean, I sort of look at uh, the large models today, and I think they're almost unreasonably effective for what they are. You know, um, I think it's pretty surprising some of the properties that emerge, things like, you know, it's clearly, in my opinion, got some form of concepts and abstractions and some things like that. And I think if we were talking five plus years ago, I would have said to you, maybe we need an additional algorithmic breakthrough uh, in order to to do that, like, um, you know, maybe more like the brain works. And, and I think that's still true if we want explicit abstract concepts, neat concepts. But it seems that these systems can implicitly learn that. Another really interesting, I think, uh, unexpected thing was that these systems have some sort of grounding. Um, you know, even though they don't experience the world multimodally, or at least until more recently when we have the multimodal models. And uh, that's surprising that, that the amount of information that can be, uh, and, and models that can be built up just from language. And I think that I have some hypotheses about why that is. Um, I think we get some grounding through the RLHF feedback systems because obviously the human raters are, are by definition grounded Grounded, uh, 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 grounded people, we're grounded, right, in, in reality. So our feedback's also grounded. So perhaps there's some grounding coming in through there. And also maybe language contains more grounding, you know, if, you're in the, if, you, if you're able to ingest all of it, yeah. than, we, than we perhaps thought, or linguists perhaps thought before. So right. it's actually some very interesting philosophical questions yeah, totally. that I think we haven't, we, we, people haven't even really scratched the surface of yet, uh, uh, the, the looking at the advances that have been made. Um, you know, it's quite interesting to think about where it's going to go next. But in terms of your question of like the you know large models, I think we've got to push scaling as as hard as we can, and that's what we're doing here. And you know, it's an empirical question whether that will hit an asymptote or a brick wall. And there are you know different people argue about that. But actually, I think we should just test it. I think no one knows. Um, and but in the meantime, we should also double down on innovation and invention. And this is something that that that, that, that Google Research and DeepMind and Google Brain have 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 you know we pioneered many many things over the last decade. That's something that's our bread and butter. And, um, you know, you can think of 
of half our effort is to do with scaling and half our efforts to do with inventing the next architectures, the next algorithms that will be needed, um, knowing that you've got this scaled larger and larger model coming along the lines. Yeah. So I, 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 my, my betting right now, but it's a loose betting, is that you would need both. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, it, 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 you've got to push both of them as hard as possible. And we're in a lucky position that we can do that. Yeah, I want to ask more about the grounding. So you can imagine two things that might change, which would make the grounding more difficult. One is that as these models get smarter, they're going to be able to um, operate in domains where we just can't generate enough human labels just because we're not smart enough, right? So if it does like a million line pull request, you know, how, how do we tell it like this is this is within the constraints of our morality and the end goal we wanted and this isn't. And the other is, it sounds like you're saying more of the compute. Uh, so far, we've been doing your know, next token prediction. And in some sense, it's a guardrail because you are you have to talk as a human would talk and think as a human would think. Now, if additional compute is going to come in the form of uh, reinforcement learning, where just like get to the end objective, uh, we can't really trace how you got there. Um, when you combine those two, how worried are you that the sort of grounding goes away? Well, look, I, I think... Um... Uh, if the grounding, you know, if it's not properly grounded, the system won't be able to achieve those goals properly, right? I think so. I think in a sense, you sort of have to have the grounding or at least some of it in order for a system to actually achieve goals in the real world. Um, I do actually think that as these systems and, and things like Gemini are becoming more multimodal um, and we start ingesting things like video and, 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 and you know, audio visual data as well as text data, and then, you know, the system starts correlating those things together, um, um, I do. I think that is a form of uh, of proper grounding, actually. So, so I do think our systems are going to start to understand, you know, the physics of the real world better. And then one could imagine the active version of that is being in a very realistic simulation or game environment where you're starting to learn about what your actions do in the world and um, and how that affects uh, 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 the world itself, the world state itself, but also what next learning episode you're getting. So, you know, these RL agents we we've always been working on and pioneered like AlphaZero and AlphaGo, um, they actually affect their active learners. What they decide to do next affects what uh, the next learning uh, piece of data or experience they're going to get. So there's this very interesting sort of feedback loop. And of course, if we ever want to be good at things like robotics, we're going to have to understand how to act in the real world. Mm. Yeah. So there's a grounding in terms of will the capabilities be able to proceed? Or will they be like in, enough in touch with reality to be able to like do the things we want? And there's another sense of grounding of um, we've gotten lucky in the sense that since they're trained on human thought, they like maybe think like a human. Yeah. To what extent does that stay true when more of the compute for trading comes from just did you get the right outcome and not guardrail by like are you like proceeding on the next token as a human would maybe the broader question i'll like pose to you is um uh, and this is what i asked shane as well what, what would it take to align a system that's smarter than a human maybe things in alien concepts uh and you can't like really monitor the million line pull request because it's you can't really understand the whole thing yeah and you can't I mean, give labels look uh, this is something shane and i and, and many others here we've had that forefront of our minds for since before we started DeepMind and because um, we planned for success, crazy, you know, 2010, no one was thinking about AI, let alone AGI. But we, we already knew that if we could make progress with these systems and these ideas, it, you know, the, the, the technology that would be created would be unbelievably transformative. So we already were thinking, you know, 20 years ago about, well, what, how, you know, what would the consequences of that be, both positive and negative? Of course, the positive direction is amazing science, things like AlphaFold, incredible breakthroughs in health and science uh, and, and maths and discovery, uh, scientific discovery. Um, but then also we've got to make sure these systems are sort of understandable and controllable.
uncontrollable. And I think there's sort of several, you know, this will be a whole sort of discussion in itself, but there are many, many ideas that people have um, from much more stringent eval systems. I think we don't have good enough evaluations and benchmarks for things like can the system deceive you? Uh, can it exfiltrate its own code? Sort of undesirable behaviors. Um, and then there's uh, 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 you know ideas of actually using AI, maybe narrow AIs, so not general learning ones, but systems that uh, are specialized for a domain to help us as the the, the, the human scientists uh, analyze and and summarize what the more general system is doing, right? So uh, kind of narrow AI tools. Um, I think that there's a lot of promise in in creating hardened sandboxes or simulations so that um, that are hardened with cybersecurity uh, 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 arrangements around the simulation, both for to keep the AI in, but also uh, as cybersecurity to keep hackers out. And, and then you could experiment a lot more uh, freely within that sandbox domain. And I think um, a lot of these ideas are, are and there's many, many others, um, including the analysis stuff we talked about earlier, where can we analyze and understand uh, what the concepts are that this system is building, what the representations are, so maybe they're not so alien to us and we can actually um, keep track of uh, uh, the kind of knowledge that it's building. Yeah, yeah. Um, stepping back a bit, I'm curious what your timelines are. So Shane said his like I think modal outcome is 2028. I think that's maybe his median. Yeah. Uh, what, what is yours? Yeah. Well, I you know I I I I don't have prescribed kind of specific numbers to it because I think there's there's so many unknowns and uncertainties and 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 um you know human ingenuity and endeavor comes up with surprises all the time. So that could meaningfully move the 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 the, the timelines. But I will say that when we started DeepMind back in 2010, you know we thought of it as a 20 year project and and actually. I think we're on track, which is kind of <laughs> amazing good, for 20-year yeah. projects because yeah, usually yeah. they're always 20 years away, sure, sure, yeah. right? So that's the joke about, you know, whatever it is, Fusion, Fusion Quantum, yeah, yeah. AI, you know, take your pick. And um, But I think we, you know, I think we're on track. So I wouldn't be surprised if we had uh, AGI-like systems in, within the next decade. Mm -hmm. And do you buy the model that once you have an AGI, you can have you have a system that basically speeds up further AI research? Maybe not like an overnight sense, but, you know, over the course of months and years, you have much faster progress than you would have otherwise had? I, I, I think that's potentially possible. Possible. Um, I, I think it partly depends what we uh, decide, we as society decide to use the first AGI, nascent AGI systems or even proto-AGI systems for. Um, so, uh, you know, even the current LLMs uh, seem to be pretty good at coding. So, uh, and, you know, we have systems like AlphaCo, we also got theorem-proving systems. So one could imagine uh, combining these ideas together and 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 making them a lot better, and then I I, I could imagine these systems being quite good at at, at designing and helping f us uh, build future versions of themselves. Um, but we also have to think about the safety implications of that, of course. Yeah, I'm curious what you think about that. So, I mean, I'm not saying this is happening this year or anything, but eventually you'll be developing a model where during the process of development, you think, you know, there's some chance that once this is fully developed, it'll be capable of like an intelligence explosion like dynamic. Um, what would have to be true of that model at that point where you're like, I, I, you know, I've seen these specific evals. I've like, I've, I've like understand its internal thinking enough and like its future thinking that I'm comfortable continuing development of the yeah. system. Well, look, we need um, we need a lot more understanding of the systems than we do today before I would be even confident of even explaining to you what we would need to tick box there. So I think actually what we've got to do in the next few years in the time we have before those systems start arriving is 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 come up with the right uh, evaluations and metrics and maybe ideally formal proofs, but you know it's going to be hard for these types of systems, but at least empirical uh, uh, bounds around what these systems can do. Um, and that's why I think about things like 
deception and as being quite root node traits that you don't want because if if you're confident that your system is 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 tell is is sort of exposing what it actually thinks then you could potentially that opens up possibilities of using the system itself to explain aspects of itself to you um the way i think about that actually is like um if i was to play a game of chess against gary kasparov right which, which i played in the past or magnus <laughs> carlson you know the amazing chess players yeah. great all time you, you i wouldn't be able to come up with a move that they could but but they could explain to me um why they came up with that move and i could understand it uh, uh post hoc right and and that's the sort of thing one could imagine uh, uh uh, one of the uh, uh, um, capabilities that we could make use of these systems is for them to explain it, uh, it to us and even the, maybe the proofs behind why they're thinking something. Certainly in a mathematical, uh, any mathematical problem. Got it. Um, do, do you have a sense of what the the converse answer would be? So what would have to be true where tomorrow morning you're like, oh man, I, I didn't anticipate this. I, I, you see some specific observation tomorrow morning where like, we, we got to stop Gemini 2 training. Like what, is there, what would specifically- Yeah, I could imagine that. Like, um, and this is where, uh, you know, things like the sandbox simulations i i, yeah, yeah. I would hope we'd, we're, we're experimenting in a in a safe secure uh environment and then you know uh, something happens in it where um very unexpected happens a new unexpected capability or something that we didn't want you know explicitly told the system we didn't want that it did but then lied about you know these are the kinds of things where one would want to then dig in yeah, yeah. carefully um you know now with the systems that are around today which are not dangerous in my opinion today but in a few years they might be uh, have have some potential um and then you would sort of ideally kind of pause and then really get to the bottom of um uh why it was doing those things before one continued mm, yeah Go going back to gemini i'm curious uh what the bottlenecks were in the development um like why not make it immediately one order of magnitude bigger uh if like scaling works well, look, first of all, there are practical limits. How much compute yeah, that yeah. can you actually fit in one data center? Sure, sure. And actually, you know, you're, you're, up, you're bumping up against very interesting, um, uh, uh, dis you know, distributed computing kind of challenges, right? Where fortunately, we have some of the best people in the world on, on those challenges and, and, you know, cross data center training, all these kinds of things, very interesting challenges, hardware challenges. And we have our TPUs and so on that we're building and designing all the time, uh, as well as using GPUs. And so... Um, there's all of that. And then you also have to, the scaling laws, you know, you, they don't, they don't just work by magic. You sort of, you still need to scale up the hyperparameters and various innovations are going in all the time with each new scale. It's not just about repeating the same recipe at each new scale. You have to adjust the recipe and, uh, and that's a bit of an art form in a way. And you have to sort of almost get new data points. If you try and extend your predictions and extrapolate them, say several orders of magnitude out, sometimes they don't hold anymore, right? Because, um, new capabilities, they can be step functions in, in terms of new capabilities and, 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 and some things just, some things hold and other things don't. So often you, you do need those intermediate data points actually to, to correct, uh, uh, some of your hyperparameter optimization and other things, so that the, the scaling law continues to be true. So, um, so there's sort of various practical limitations onto onto that. Um, so, you know, kind of one order of magnitude is about probably the maximum that you want to you want to carry on. Uh, you want to sort of do between each uh, each era. 
Oh, that's so fascinating. Uh, you know, in the GPT for technical report, they say that they were able to predict the, the training loss, um, of, you know, tens of thousands of times less compute than GPT-4, they could see the curve. But the point you're making is that the actual capabilities that loss implies um, it may not be so yeah, clear. Yeah, the downstream capabilities yeah, yeah, yeah. sometimes don't follow from the, you can often predict the, the core yeah. metrics like training loss or, or something yeah. like that, but then um, it doesn't actually translate into MMLU or, sure, or math sure. or, or some other actual uh, capability that you care about. It's, right. They're not they're not necessarily linear all the time. Yeah, yeah. So there's sort of non-linear effects there. What was the biggest surprise to you during the development of Gemini? Of so some, some something like this happening? Um, well, I, I mean, the, I, I wouldn't say there was one big surprise, but it's it was very interesting. You know, trying to train things at that at that size and 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 learning about. Um, uh, all sorts of things from organizational how to babysit such a system and and to track it and and I think things like getting a better uh, understanding of of the the metrics you're optimizing versus the the final capabilities that you want um, I would say that's still not a perfectly understood uh, 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 mapping but but it's an interesting one that we're getting better and better at yeah yeah there's a perception that maybe other labs are more compute efficient uh, than uh, DeepMind has been with Gemini I don't know what you make of that for a second uh, I don't think that's the case I mean you know it's uh, 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 I, I think that, that actually Gemini 1 used roughly the same amount of compute maybe slightly more than, than what was rumored for GPT-4 I don't know exactly what was was used so um, I think it was in the same ballpark um, I think we're very efficient with our compute and we use our compute for many things one is not just the scaling but going back to earlier to these more innovation and, and uh, ideas, you've got to, you know, it's only useful a new innovation, a new invention, if it also can scale. So, so in a way, um, you also need quite a lot of compute to do new invention, uh, because you've got to test many things at at least some reasonable scale and make sure that they work at that scale. And also some new ideas may not work at a toy scale, but do work at a larger scale. And in fact, those are the more valuable ones. So you actually, if you think about that exploration process, you need quite a lot of compute to be able to do that. Um, I mean, the good news is, is I think, you know, we, we're pretty lucky at Google that we, I think we, this year, certainly we're going to have the most compute by far of, of any sort of research lab. And, you know, we hope to make very efficient and good use of that in terms of both scaling uh, and the capability of our systems and also new inventions. Yeah. What's been the biggest surprise to you uh, if you go back to uh, yourself in 2010 when you were starting DeepMind in terms of what AI progress has looked like? Did you anticipate back then that it would in some large sense amount to spend, uh, you know, dumping billions of dollars into these models? Or did you have a different sense of what it would look like? We thought that and actually, you know, if you I know you've interviewed my, my colleague Shane and 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 he he always thought that and in terms of like um compute curves and and then maybe comparing it roughly to like the brain and how many neurons and synapses there are very loosely but we're actually interestingly in that kind of regime now roughly in the right order of magnitude of you know number of synapses in the brain and 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 the sort of compute that we have but I think more fundamentally you know we we always thought that um, we bet on generality and learning right so th those were always at the core of the any technique we would use that's why we triangulated on reinforcement learning and search and and and, and deep learning right as three types of algorithms that that would scale and um and and would be very general and and not require a lot of handcrafted human priors which we thought was the sort of failure mode really of of the efforts to build ai uh in the 90s right places like mit where where there were very you know logic based systems expert systems you know, masses of hand-coded, hand-crafted human information going into them that turned out to be wrong or, or too rigid. So we wanted to move away from that. And I think we spotted that trend early and uh, became, you know, and obviously we, we use games as our proving ground and we did very well with that. And I think all of that 
was very successful and I think it's maybe inspired others uh, to, you know, things like AlphaGo, I think was a big moment for inspiring many others to think, oh, actually these systems are ready to scale. And then of course, with the advent of transformers invented by our colleagues at Google, you know, research and brain, that was the, then, you know, the, the, the type of deep learning that allowed us to ingest masses of amounts of information. And that, uh, of course, has really turbocharged where we are today. So I think that's all part of the same lineage. Um, I, you know, we, we couldn't have predicted every twist and turn there. But I think the general direction we were going in um, uh, was the right one. Yeah. And in fact, it's it's like fascinating because actually if you like read your old papers or Shane's old papers, uh, Shane's thesis, I think in 2009, he said like, well, you know, the way we would test for AI is if you can you compress Wikipedia and that's like yeah. literally the last function of our LLMs or like your own paper in like 2016 before Transformers where you said like uh, you were comparing neuroscience and um, AI and he said yeah. attention is what is yes, needed. And exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, so we had these things called right. out and, and actually we had some early attention papers, or, or, uh, um, but they weren't as elegant as Transformers in the end, like neural Turing machines and things like this. Yeah. Um, uh, and then Transformers was the was the nicer and more general architecture of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, when, when you when you extrapolate all this out forward, and you think about uh, superhuman intelligence, or is um, like what does that landscape look like to you? Is it is it like still controlled by a private company? Like, what should the governance of that look like uh, uh, concretely? Yeah, look, I, I would love. Um, you know, I think that this has to be. Uh, uh, this is so consequential. This technology, I think, it's much bigger than any one company or. Or, or even industry in general, I think it has to be a big collaboration with many stakeholders from civil society, academia, government. And the good news is I think with the popularity of the recent chatbot systems and so on, I think that has woken up uh, uh, many of these other parts of society that this is coming and what it will be like to interact with these systems. And that's great. So it's opened up lots of doors for very good conversations. I mean, an example of that was the safety summit at, in the UK hosted a few months ago, which I thought was a big success to start getting this international dialogue going. And, 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 you know, I think it, the whole of society needs to be involved in deciding what do we want to deploy these models for? How do we want to use them? What do we not want to use them for? You know, I think we've got to try and get some international consensus around that. Uh, and then also making sure that the benefits of these systems uh, uh, benefit everyone, you know, for the good of everyone and society in general. And that's why I push so hard things like AI for science. And and I hope that, you know, with things like our spin out isomorphic, we're going to start curing diseases, you know, terrible diseases with AI and accelerate drug discovery. Amazing things, climate change and other things. I think big challenges that face us uh, and face humanity, um, massive challenges, actually, which I'm optimistic we can solve uh, because we've got this incredibly powerful tool coming along down the line of AI uh, that we can apply and I think help us and uh, solve many of these problems. So, you know, ideally, we would have a big uh, a consensus around that and, and, and a big discussion, you know, sort of almost like the UN level, if possible. Mm. You know, one interesting thing is if you look at these systems, they you chat with them and they're, they're immensely powerful and uh, intelligent. Um, but it's it's interesting to the extent of which they haven't like automated large sections of the economy yet. Um, whereas if five years ago I showed you uh, Gemini, you'd be like, wow, this is like, you know, totally coming for a lot of things. Yeah. So well, how, how do you account for that? Like what, what's going on where it hasn't uh, had had the broader impact? Yeah, yet? I think it's we're still I think that just shows we're still at the beginning of of, of this new era. Yeah. Um, and I think that for these systems, I think there are some interesting use cases. You you know, um, you know where you can use things to some, you know, these 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 chatbot systems to summarize uh, stuff for you, and and maybe do some simple writing, and uh, uh, maybe more kind of 
boilerplate type writing, but that's only a small part of what you know we we all do every day. So I think for more general use cases, um, I think we need, still need new capabilities, uh, things like um, planning and search, but also maybe things like personalization and uh, memory, episodic memory. So not just long context windows, but actually remembering what I what, what we spoke about a hundred conversations ago. Um, and I think once those start coming in, I mean I'm really looking forward to things like recommendation systems that that help me find better, more enriching material, whether that's books or films or music and so on. You know, I would use that type of system every day. So I think we're just scratching the surface of uh, uh, what these AI, say, assistants could actually do uh, for us in our general everyday lives and also in our work context as well. I think they're not reliable yet enough to do things like science with them. But I think one day, you know, once we fix factuality and grounding and other things, um, I think they could end up becoming like, you know, the world's best research assistant for for you as a as a scientist or as a as a uh, as a as a clinician. Mm. Uh, I want to ask about memory, by the way. Um, you had this fascinating paper in 2007 where you uh, talk about the links between memory and imagination yes. and how they, in some sense, are very similar. Um, uh, you, people often claim that these models are just memorizing. How do you think about that claim that people make? Um, is, is memorization all you need? Because in some some deep sense, that's compression or, you know, what, what's your intuition here? Yeah, I mean, sort of at the limit, one one maybe could try and memorize everything, but it wouldn't generalize out of, out of your distribution. And I think these systems are clearly, I think the early, the early uh, um, criticisms of these early systems uh, were that they were just regurgitating and memorizing. But I think clearly the new era, the Gemini GPT-4 type era, they are definitely generalizing to new constructs. Um, So, but actually, you know, in my thesis and and that paper particularly uh, that started that era of imagination in neuroscience was showing that you know, first of all, memory, certainly at least human memory is a reconstructive process. It's not a videotape, right? We sort of put it together back from components that seems familiar to us, that the, the ensemble. And that's what made me think that imagination might be the same thing, except in this case, you're using the same semantic components, but now you're putting it together into a way that your brain thinks is novel, yeah. right? For a particular purpose like planning. And, um, and so I do think that uh, that kind of idea is still probably missing from our current systems, this sort of pulling together different um, parts of your world model to simulate something new that then helps with your planning, uh, which is what I would call imagination. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, now, now you guys have the best models in the world, um, you, you know, with the Gemini models. Uh, uh, do you ha- do you have uh, do you plan on putting out some sort of framework like the other two major AI labs have of, you know, once we see these specific capabilities, unless we have these specific safeguards, we're not going to continue development or we're not going to ship the product out? Uh, yes, we, we have actually we I mean, we have already lots of internal checks and balances, sure. but we're going to start publishing actually, gonna, oh, you know, sort of watch this space is we're working on a whole bunch of um, blog posts and technical papers that uh, we'll be putting out in the next few months that, um, you know, along the similar lines of things like responsible scaling laws and so on. We have those uh, uh, implicitly internally in various uh, safety councils and so on, people like Shane, Chair and so on. Um, but but uh, it's time for us to talk about that more publicly, I think. So we'll be doing that throughout the course of the year. Uh, that's great to hear. Um, and I, I, another thing I'm curious about is, um, so it's not only the risk of like, uh, you know, the, the deployed model being something that people can use to do bad things, but also uh, rogue actors about foreign agents, so forth, being able to steal the weights and then fine tune them to do crazy things. Um, uh, how do you think about securing the weights to make sure something like this doesn't happen, yes. uh, making sure a very, a very like key group of people have access to them and so forth? Yeah, it's interesting. So first of all, there's sort of two parts of this. One is security, one is open source, maybe we can discuss. But the security, I think, is super key, like just as sort of 
um, normal cybersecurity type things. And I think we're lucky at Google DeepMind, we're kind of behind Google's firewall and, and cloud protection, which is, you know, I think best, you know, best in class in the world corporately. So we already have that protection. And then behind that, we have specific uh, uh, DeepMind uh, uh, protections within our code base. So it's sort of a double layer of protection. So I feel pretty good about that. That that's, I mean, we, we you know, you can never be complacent on that, but I feel it's 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 already sort of best in the world in terms of cyber uh, uh, defenses. Um, but we've got to carry on improving that. And again, things like the hardened sandboxes could be a way of doing that uh, as well. And and maybe even there are um, you know uh, specifically secure data centers or hardware solutions to this too that we're thinking about. I think that maybe in the next three, four, five years we would also want um, air gaps and various other things that are known in the security community. So I think that's key. And I think all frontier labs should be doing that because otherwise, you know, nation states and other things, rogue, rogue nation, you know, states and other other dangerous actors, um, that, that there would be obviously a lot of incentive for them to, to steal things like the weights. Um, and then, you know, of course, open source is another interesting question, which is we're huge proponents of open source and open science. I mean, almost every, you know, we've published thousands of papers and and things like AlphaFold and Transformers, of course, and AlphaGo, all of these things we put out there into the world, uh, uh, published and, and open source, many of them, uh, Graphcast most recently, our weather prediction system. But when it comes to, uh, 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 you know, the core technology, the foundational technology and very general purpose. I think the question I would have is, um, if you, you know, uh, 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 first sort of open source proponents is that how does one uh, uh, stop bad actors, um, individuals or rogue, you know, up to rogue states, um, taking those uh, same open source systems and repurposing them uh, because they're general purpose for harmful ends, right? So we have to answer that question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and I haven't heard a compelling. I mean, I don't know what the answer is to that, but I haven't heard a compelling, clear answer to that from uh, 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 proponents of just sort of open sourcing everything. Yeah. So I think there has to be some balance there. But um, you know, obviously, it's a complex question of of to what that is. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like tech doesn't get the credit it deserves for like funding you know hundreds of billions of dollars worth of R and D. Yeah. Um, and you know, obviously, you have DeepMind with systems like AlphaFold and so yeah. on. Um, well, but when we talk about securing uh, the weights, uh, you know, as we said, like maybe right. Now it's not uh, something that like is going to cause the end of the world or anything. But as these systems get better and better, the worry that uh, yes, yeah, a foreign agent or something gets access to them. Presumably, right now there's like dozens to hundreds of researchers who have access to the weights. How do you? Uh, what's a plan for like getting into like the situation, getting the weights in a situation rooms? So if you're like, if you need to access to them, you, you it's like you, you know some extremely strenuous process. You, nobody, nobody individual can really take them out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one has to balance that with 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 allowing for collaboration, sure. and speed of progress. Actually, another interesting thing is, you, of course, you want. Uh, uh, you know, brilliant independent researchers from academia or or things like the UK AI Safety Institute and US One um, to be able to uh, 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 kind of red team these systems. So so one has to expose them to a certain extent, um, although that's not necessarily the weights. Um, and then you know we have a lot of processes in place about uh, making sure that um, you know only if you need them that that you have access to you know those people who need access have access um, and. Right now, I think we're still in the early days of those kinds of systems being at risk. And as that, as these systems become more powerful and more general and more capable, um, I think one has to look at the, the access question. Mm. Uh, so some of these other labs have specialized in different things uh, relative to safety, like Anthropic, for example, with interoperability. And um, um, do you have some sense of where uh, you guys might have an edge as so that, you know, now that you have the frontier model, you're going to keep scale up safety where you guys are going to be able to put out the, the best frontier research yeah, on safety? I think, you know, well, we, we helped pioneer RLHF and other 
other sure, things like yeah. that, which can also be obviously used for performance, but also right. for safety. Um, I think that, uh, um, you know, a lot of the self-play ideas and these kinds of things could also be used potentially to to auto-test uh, a lot of the the, the the boundary conditions that you have with the new systems. I mean, part of the issue is that um, with these sort of very general systems, uh, there's so much surface area to, to cover, like about how these systems behave. So I think we are going to need some automated uh, testing. And and again, with things like simulations and games environment, very realistic environments, uh, virtual environments, I think we have a long history in in that and and, and using those kinds of systems and making use of them for, for, for building AI algorithms. So I think we can leverage all of that uh, history. Um, and then, you know, around at Google, we're very lucky we have some of the world's best cybersecurity experts, hardware designers. So I think we can bring that to bear in, in you know, for security and safety as well. Great, great. Um, let's talk about Gemini. Yeah. Um, so, you know, now, you know, you guys have the best model in the world. Um, I'm, so uh, I'm curious, you know, the default way to interact with these systems has been through chat uh, so far. Now that we have multimodal and all these new capabilities, how do you anticipate that changing or do you think that'll still be the case? Yeah, I think we're just at the beginning of actually understanding what a full multimodal model system, uh, how exciting that might be to interact with. And 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 uh, it'll be quite different to, I think, what we're used to today with the chatbots. I think um, uh, uh, the next versions of this over in the next year, 18 months, you know, maybe we'll have some contextual understanding around the environment around you through a camera or whatever it is, a phone. Um, you know, I could imagine that's the next awesome glasses, the next step. Um, and then I think that, that we'll start start becoming more fluid in understanding oh let's 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 sample from a video let's let's use voice um uh um maybe even eventually things like touch and and you know if you think about robotics and other things uh you know sensors other types of sensors so i think uh, uh the world's about to become very exciting i think in the next few years as we start getting used to the idea of what true multimodality means mm. um on the robotic subject uh, Ilya said when he was on the podcast that the reason OpenAI gave up on robotics was because they didn't have enough data in that domain at least at the time they were pursuing it um, I mean, you guys have put out different things like Robo Transformer and other yes. things. How what, what, do you think that's still a bottleneck for robotics progress, or will we see progress in the world of atoms as well as the world? Yeah, of bits? well, we're very excited about our progress with things like Gato and 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 and, and RT two, you know, robotic transformer, and uh, and we actually think. Um, so we've always liked robotics and we've we've had you know amazing research in that and we still have that going now because we like the fact that it's a data poor regime because that pushes us on so on very interesting research directions that we think are going to be useful anyway like sampling efficiency and data efficiency in general and transfer learning uh, learning from simulation transferring that to reality all of these very you know sim to real all of these very interesting uh, actually general challenges that we would like to solve um so the control problem Problem. So um, we've always pushed hard on that. And actually, I think uh, 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 so, so Ilya's right that that is more challenging because of the data problem. Um, but it's also I think we're starting to see the beginnings of um, these large models being transferable uh, to the robotics regime, learning in the general domain, language domain and other things, and then just treating tokens like Gato as any type of token. You know, the token could be an action, it could be a word, it could be uh, part of an image, a pixel or whatever it is. And that's what I think true multimodality is. And to begin with, it's harder to train a system like that than a straightforward uh, a text a language system. Um, but uh, actually, you know, going back to our early conversation of, of transfer learning, you start seeing that 
a true multimodal system, the other modalities benefit uh, some some different modalities. So you get better at language because you you now understand a little bit about video. So um, I do think uh, it's harder to get going, but actually ultimately um, we'll have a more general, more capable system like that. Uh, whatever happened to Gato? Like that was super fascinating that you could have like play games and yeah. also do like video and also do yeah, text. Yeah, we're still we're still working on those kinds of systems, but you can imagine we're just trying to uh, those ideas we're trying to build into our uh, uh, future generations of Gemini. Oh, great. You know, to be able to do all of those things and 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 robotics transformers and you know things like that are, are kind of you can think of them as sort of uh, follow ups to that. Mm. Well, we see asymmetric progress towards the domains in which the self play kinds of things you're talking about will be especially powerful. So Math and code. You know, obviously, recently you have these papers out about this, um, or, or yeah, you can you can use these things to do um, uh, really cool novel things. Uh, will, we, will they just be like superhuman coders, but like in other ways, they might be still worse than humans? Or how do you think about that sort yeah, of? Yeah. So look, I, I think that 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 um, you know we're making great progress with math and 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 things like theorem proving and and coding, um, but uh, it's still interesting. You know, if one looks at uh, I mean, creativity in general and scientific endeavor in general, I think we're getting to the stage where our systems could help the best human scientists make their breakthroughs quicker, like almost triage the search space in some ways, uh, or perhaps find a solution like AlphaFold does with a protein structure. Um, but it can't, it's, they're not at the level where they can create the hypothesis themselves or, or ask the right question. And any, as any top scientist will tell you, that that's the hardest part of science is actually asking the right question, uh, boiling down that space to like, what's the critical question we should go after, the critical problem, and then formulating that problem in the right way to attack it. And that's not... Um, something our systems, well, we have really have any idea how our systems could do, um, but they can, uh, they are suitable for searching uh, large combinatorial spaces if one can specify uh, the problem in that way with a, a clear objective function. So that's very useful for already uh, many of the problems we deal with today, but not the the most high level creative problems. Mm. Um, uh, when, when you, uh, so DeepMind obviously has uh, published all kinds of interesting stuff and, in, uh, you know, speeding up science in different areas. Um, how do you think about that in the context of if you think AGI is going to happen in the next 10, 20 years, uh, why not just wait for the AGI to do it for you? Uh, why build these domain-specific uh, solutions? Yeah, well, I think um, we don't know how long AGI is going to be. Uh -huh. and, and we always used to say, uh, you know, back even when we started DeepMind, that... that uh, 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 we don't have to wait for AGI in order for to bring incredible benefits to the world, um, and uh, it, especially um, you know my personal passion has been AI for science and, and and health, and and you can see that with things like AlphaFold and all of our various nature papers on different domains, our material science work, and so on. I think there's lots of exciting directions, uh, and also impact in the world through products too. I think it's very exciting uh, and a huge opportunity, unique opportunity we have as as part of Google of 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 the you know they, they you know they got dozens of 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 billion user products right that we can immediately ship our advances into and then uh billions of people uh can can you know uh, improves their daily lives right and enriches their daily lives and enhances their daily lives so i think it's it's a fantastic opportunity for impact on all those fronts and i think the other reason from a point of view of of agi specifically is that it it battle tests your ideas, 
right? So you don't want to be in a sort of uh, research bunker where you just, you know, theoretically are pushing things, some things forward, but then actually your internal metrics start deviating from uh, 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 real world things that would ca- people would care about, right? Or real world impact. Um, so you get a lot of feedback, uh, direct feedback from these real world applications that then tells you whether your systems really are scaling or, or actually is, you know, do we need to be more data efficient or sample efficient because most real world uh, uh, challenges uh, require that, right? And so it kind of keeps you honest and um, pushes you, you know, keeps sort of nudging and steering your research directions to make sure they're on the right path. So I think it's fantastic. And of course, the world benefits from that, society benefits from that on the way many, many, maybe many, many years before AGI arrives. Yeah. Um, well, the, the development of Gemini is super interesting because it comes right at the heels of merging these uh, different organizations, uh, Brain and DeepMind. Um, yeah, I'm curious, what have been the challenges there? What have been the synergies? Uh, and it's, it's been successful in the sense that you have the best model in the world now. What's yeah, that been, been like? Well, look, it's, it's, it's been fantastic, actually actually over the last year. Of course, it's been challenging to do that, like any any big integration coming together. Um, but you're talking about two, you know, world-class organizations, um, uh, long storied histories of inventing many, many important things, um, you know, from deep reinforcement learning to transformers. And so it's very exciting actually um, pooling all of that together and and collaborating much more closely. We always used to be collaborating, but more on a on a on a you know sort of project by project basis versus uh, a much deeper, broader collaboration like we have now. And Gemini is the first fruit of of that uh, uh, collaboration. Uh, including the name Gemini, actually, you know, <laughs> implying twins. And uh, and of course, a lot of other things are made more efficient, like pooling compute resources together and ideas and engineering, which um, I think at the stage we're at now where there's huge amounts of world-class engineering that has to go on to build the frontier systems, um, I think it makes sense to to coordinate that more closely. Yeah. So, I mean, you you and Shane started DeepMind um, partly because you were concerned about safety. Um, and you, you saw AGI coming as like a live possibility. Do you, uh, do you think the people who were formerly part of Brain, the half of Google DeepMind now, do they? Do you think they approach it in the same way? Have there been cultural differences there in terms of that question? Yeah, no, I think overall, and this is why, you know, I, I, I think one of the reasons we joined forces with Google back in 2014 was I think um, the entirety of Google and Alphabet, not just Brain and DeepMind, take these questions very seriously of, of responsibility. And, um, you know, our kind of mantra is to try and be bold and responsible with these systems. So, you know, I would, I would, I would class it as I'm obviously a huge techno optimist, but I, I want us to be cautious with that, given the transformative power of what we're bringing bringing into the world, you know, collectively, and um, I think it's important. Uh, you know, I think it's going to be one of the most important technologies humanity will ever invent. So we've we've got to put you know all our efforts into getting this right and to be thoughtful and sort of also humble about what we know and don't know about uh, 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 the systems that are coming and the uncertainties around that. And in my view, the only the only sensible approach when you have huge uncertainty is to be sort of cautiously optimistic and use the scientific method to try and have as much foresight and understanding about what's coming down the line and the consequences of that before it happens. You know, you don't want to be live A-B testing out in the world sure. with these very consequential systems because unintended consequences may be, may be quite severe. So, um, you know, I, I want us to move away as a, a as a field from a sort of move fast and break things attitude, which is you know maybe served the valley very well in the past and obviously created uh, uh, important innovations. Um, but but I think in this case, you know, we want to be uh, uh, bold with the with the positive things that it can do and make sure we realize things like medicine and science and advancing all of those things whilst being um, you know responsible and thoughtful with with uh, as far as possible with with uh, mitigating the risks.
Yeah, yeah, and th- that's why it seems like the the responsible scaling policies or something that that is a, a very good empirical way to pre-commit to these kinds of things. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, and I'm curious if you have a sense of like, for example, when you're doing these evaluations, if it turns out your next model um, could ha- help a layperson build a, a pandemic class with bioweapon or something, uh, how you would think first of all of secu- making sure those weights are secure so it, that that doesn't get out, and second, uh, what would have to be true for you to be comfortable deploying that system? How comfortable? Like, how how would you make sure that 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 latent capability is an Exposed. Yeah. Well, first, I mean, you know, the, the, the secure model part, I think we've covered with the cybersecurity yeah, yeah. and and make sure that's world class yep. and you're monitoring all those things. I think um, if a capability was 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 discovered like that through red teaming or, or external testing by, you know, uh, uh, government institutes and or academia or whatever, mm-hmm. independent uh, testers, um, then we would have to fix that that loophole would depending what it was right um if that required more um uh, uh a different kind of perhaps constitution or, or or different guardrails or more rlhf to, to avoid that or removing some training data um there could i mean depending on what the problem is i think there could be a number of of, of mitigations and uh so the first part is making sure you detect it ahead of time so that's about the right evaluations uh, and right benchmarking and right and right testing and then um the question is how one would fix that before you know you deployed it so, sure, sure. but i think it would need to be fixed before it was deployed generally for sure if, if, if that was an ex- exposure surface right right um final question um uh you know you've been thinking in terms of like the end goal of asia at a time when other people thought it was uh, ridiculous in 2010 now that we're seeing um this like slow takeoff where we're actually seeing these like generalization and intelligence um ha- what is like the psychologically seeing this what has that been like have you just been, like sort of priced into your world model so you like it's not new news for you or is it like actually just seeing a lag you're like wow like uh was this something's like really changed or how, what does it feel like yeah well for me um it, yes it's it's already priced into my world model of how things were going to go at least from the technology side but um obviously i didn't we didn't necessarily anticipate um the general public would be that interested yeah. this early in the sequence right of of things like maybe one could think of if we were to produce more if if say like a, a chat gpt and and chatbots hadn't got the kind of got the interest they'd ended up getting which i think was quite surprising to everyone that people were ready to use these things uh even though they, they were lacking in certain directions right impressive though they are um then we would have produced more specialized systems i think built off of the main track like alpha folds and alpha goes and uh and so on and our scientific work and then um I think the 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 general public maybe um, would have only paid attention later down the road, where in a few years' time, where we have more generally useful assistant type systems. So that's been interesting. So that's created a different type of uh, environment that we're now all operating in as a as a as a as a field. So um, and it's a little bit more chaotic because there's so many more things going on, and there's so much VC money going into it, and everyone's sort of almost losing their minds over it. I think, <laughs> and I and, and I and what I just the thing. thing I worry about is I want to make sure that as a field we act responsibly and thoughtfully and and scientifically about this and use the scientific method to approach this in a in a as I said an optimistic but careful way and I think that's the I've always believed that's the right approach for 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 something like AI and um, I just hope that doesn't get lost in this huge rush sure sure well I think that's a great place to close Demis so much thanks to you thank you so much for your time and for coming on the podcast thanks it's been a real pleasure Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that episode. As always, the most helpful thing you can do is to share the podcast. Send it to people you think might enjoy it. Put it in Twitter, your group chats, etc. Just blitz the world. Appreciate you listening. I'll see you next time. Cheers.